Hello, and welcome to 13, the podcast that asks questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host, Dan DeVries, and today I'm excited to welcome to the program three professors from Colgate's Computer Science Department to share their understanding of the latest developments related to artificial intelligence, or AI for short, and to provide answers to the most basic questions about this technology and what it might mean for the future. Seems like nearly every day there's a new breakthrough or a surprising danger that stems from companies developing AI tools. And with the launch of ChatGPT in November of 2022, the global discourse has become obsessed with the implications of computers with seemingly limitless knowledge at the fingertips of really anyone in the general public. And to help us understand where the world is now with AI and what we might expect in the future, we are joined by Noah Apthorpe, Assistant Professor of Computer Science. Apthorpe earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degree from Princeton University. We're also joined by Assistant Professor of Computer Science, Grusha Prasad. Prasad earned a bachelor's degree from Hampshire College and a PhD from Johns Hopkins University. And finally, we're also joined by Assistant Professor of Computer Science, Nick Diana. Diana earned a bachelor's from Allegheny College and his PhD from Carnegie Mellon University. Noah, Grusha, and Nick, welcome to 13. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so we're going to go around the table here um, quickly, and we'll just talk uh, a little bit about your background, your expertise, the things that you study, and um, uh, the things that you teach here at Colgate. So, Noah, let's start with you. Hi, Dan. And first of all, thanks for having all of us on the podcast. We're really glad to be here, excited to talk about this topic. Uh, so my, my background is uh, in computer science. Um, I do quite interdisciplinary research uh, on the interface of privacy and security machine learning, uh, and to some extent, human-computer interaction. Um, my work often asks questions about uh, consumer protection, what are ways in which uh, the devices and systems that we use potentially posing privacy or security risks, how do we understand those risks, how do we uh, understand the ways that people are thinking and reasoning about issues of privacy and security, uh, and I answer many of those questions using uh, AI and machine learning techniques. Oh, very cool. Uh, you asked about courses. Yes. Uh, I teach uh, the applied machine learning course in the computer science department. I also teach a course called uh, Security, Privacy, and Society. Uh, and then um, I teach a course, uh, co-teach with another professor in the department called Gadgets and Gizmos, the hardware software interface, where we get students involved in building some hardware gadgets uh, that kind of combines uh, the physical and programming aspects of computer science. All right. Um, all very in demand at the moment, I would say, huh? Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, definitely don't have too many issues getting students to sign up for those courses, which is very nice. Right. Grusha, tell us about yourself. Yeah. So uh, thanks again for having us here. Uh, I My background is in cognitive science. And so not in computer science, but a very adjacent, I call it the other CS. Because when <laughs> my undergrad, we were called the CS department, but it was the cog sci. Um, so very broadly, what I'm interested in is language processing. So which is how, and it started with how do people process language. Mm. And I was very excited about that because, you know, I'm a bilingual, a multilingual. And I think growing up, I was always just like reflecting and wondering about these things. So I was very excited to start studying that in my undergrad. But then as I progressed, I think studying that kind of requires you to think very precisely about what you're doing and formulate hypotheses. So that's how I got into 
computational modeling and using that to kind of generate predictions and then kind of pivoted into, well, why just people? Right? We also have these other systems that are processing language, which are AI systems or natural language processing systems. So can we use the tools that we have from, say, psychology and linguistics to also then study what these models are doing when they're processing language? So really, I think of my work as like there's two directions. One direction is to use insights from AI or computational modeling to better understand how people process language. And the other direction is then using insights from linguistics, psychology, cognitive science to actually study how these models process language. So that's the two directions. And depending on what day you talk to me, I'm more excited <laughs> about one question or the other. Uh, and in terms of teaching, so this is just my first year here. So I've taught the intro sequence and I'm actually very excited to teach that because I care about computational thinking and really making it accessible to a wide range of audience. And so it's really been awesome to teach that class and throw in my language uh, <laughs> instincts and like kind of get that there. Um, but also I've taught NLP, so natural language processing this semester. And I'm kind of hoping to continue teaching that and also maybe add in additional electives about interpretability. So like, how do we understand what models are doing? But then also maybe some more cognitive science, computational modeling types of electives in the future. Oh, thank you. And Nick? Yeah, so um, I actually come from the cognitive psychology, cognitive neuroscience world, uh, but I got my PhD in human-computer interaction, uh, which is sort of this nexus between um, psychology and sociology, design, and computer science, right? And so uh, my work kind of sits sort of at the intersection of those things. Um, my specific research is interested in how we can use technology to support things like informal reasoning, right? So how can we use computers as, as um, a support tool for navigating these sort of informal reasoning tasks? Um, specifically, uh, this means I sort of publish a lot in the ed tech world, um, but I'm specifically sort of interested in civic reasoning. So like, how do we engage in productive discourse online? Um, how do we navigate things like misinformation, things like that? Um, in, uh, in terms of teaching, uh, I teach the human-computer interaction course, um, obviously. And uh, I also, uh, this fall, taught for the first time our new ethics course, Computing and Society. Um, and I've also taught uh, in the core a course called um, Bias in Humans and Machines. And bias mm. is one of the areas of research that I kind of focus on. Oh, great. Well, thank you all very much. This is really awesome. I'm so excited to have all three of you here talking about this. Um, and I think we should we should start at the top uh, in to I guess create a baseline of knowledge for everyone listening who may not follow this stuff very closely. Um, but just at top level, what is what technically defines an AI, an artificial intelligence? Yeah, so um, AI is sort of uh, it's a term that's thrown around a lot yes. um, these days, and I think um, sometimes it's used correctly and sometimes it's used incorrectly. Um, in computer science, we think of AI as um, uh, sort of a machine learning process that is designed to mimic or replicate, or in some cases maybe surpass, um, sort of human cognition, right? So sort of the kind of tasks that a human, um, a person with human cognition would do. Okay. So it's basically, um, well, I guess, does anybody want to add to that? Sure. So I sure. can uh, add, to, add on to that an example that I 
I draw from at the beginning of my applied machine learning course. Yeah. Uh, so I describe um, AI machine learning and machine learning specifically as uh, a way to sort of leverage the computational ability of computing systems to solve problems and learn how to solve problems that humans might not know how to solve or might not be able to write good instructions for how to solve. So in traditional computer science that isn't AI, uh, a typical task is to write a program that would solve some, some problem. And usually that involves going in and writing out specific instructions for how the computer should do this task. Those instructions usually need to be very specific. They need to be non-ambiguous uh, in ways that allows the computer to do exactly what the programmer intends. But there are lots of big problems out there that we don't exactly know the right directions, the right step-by-step -step process to solve. Mm -hmm. And so AI takes this opinion of, of rather than asking the human to write out all of those steps uh, explicitly, instead we sort of build a framework that allows the computer to figure out what those steps are by learning from examples that it sees from the real world. Uh, and in that way, we can leverage the examples that we we find, the the, the data that's, that's out there that's collected by the AI programmer to build a program that's able to do something which the programmer might not have been able to explicitly describe on their own. And I think I just want to add to both of those answers. I think so Noah brought up this idea of a framework, and I think where people fall along this lines of framework is how loose do they want it to be, right? So there's an approach where you can say, here's like a big model. I'm not putting any constraints on it. I'm going to throw a bunch of data at it and have it figure something out. Or you can build in slightly more structure. You can have it be extremely structured, right? So I think it really falls along a spectrum. And this is what kind of makes AI like a really interdisciplinary field because depending on what you're bringing in, you can add different components to the framework. So are you going to tell, are you going to think about uh, what data should the model be trained on? Are you thinking about what kinds of things should a model be doing? Or how do you test what a model does, right? So I think there's really like a wide range of skills and insights that people from different backgrounds can bring and which is what makes AI like such an interdisciplinary and like a cool field that, yeah, people really, and a very collaborative field. Hmm. So what is the process or what goes into building an AI system? Um, is it just a bunch of lines of code or how, how are these things made? So that question is is big in the sense that AI is somewhat multifaceted. There's lots of different domains in which uh, AI systems are deployed. And depending on which domain that you're in, you might get a slightly different answer. Uh, and I think that's kind of broadly true for conversations about AI is that there's lots of terminology that gets thrown around. And unfortunately, they're not always used consistently. Okay. Uh, so we'll, we'll try to give an overview here, yeah. but uh, obviously sort of with the caveat that uh, if you focus on any specific area, you might find some variation in how terms are defined or in how general processes work. And so for the most part, uh, um, at the highest level, AI systems, they're built by sort of defining the, the goal, the thing that you want the AI system to do, uh, defining how you're going to measure the success of the system, uh, finding some uh, data that represents the phenomenon uh, about which you want the system to model or make predictions or, or sort of operate in, uh, and then an algorithm which takes that data and allows the model to sort of figure out the process that it needs to do to solve the problem. Uh, and 
at the end of, of, of putting all those pieces together, uh, running this algorithm, this process, you end up with uh, typically uh, what we call a model. So I think Grush has brought this up already. And this is uh, sort of just a, a, a computational uh, structure which uh, has hopefully uh, come to represent something about that phenomenon. If we're talking about something like ChatGPT, it's, it's something that has come to represent aspects of uh, natural language that it can then use to generate more text. Uh, if we're talking about image classification, uh, this model then has, has seen a whole bunch of example images and has come to represent something fundamental, hopefully, about those images, which then lets it do tasks like classifying images into uh, you know, what's in them or picking objects out of images later on. I guess I'd like to dig into that a little bit. So is um, all is all AI or to be classified as AI, does it have to be able to do some type of learning? So is there some type of improvement that the system is doing itself? Is that a requirement of being AI or no? Sorry, I feel very strongly about this. <laughs> okay, and great. so I think these days when you say uh, so there's actually two things that you asked, right? So I want to kind of clarify that. So first is learning, mm -hmm. and the second is learning on its own, mm. right? And I think that's kind of like, uh, this is like a slight distinction that you want to do there. At some level, there needs to be something that is learned, right? So depending on how broad your definition of learning is, I think the answer would be yes, a system has to learn something. But the extent to which it has to learn on its own really differs, right? And this goes back to kind of the framework and how uh, specific you want your framework to be, a uh, point that I kind of made earlier. So these days, I think uh, you might have heard the terms like neural network, machine learning, and all of those kind of things being thrown about. These are largely, uh, they learn on their own in the sense that you give them some input. Uh, you say, okay, this is what is going into the system, mm -hmm. and this is what I want to come out of the system. And I'm not going to tell you how to take this input and make it into that output. I'm just going to give you lot of, lots of tools, which is just like numbers that you can manipulate to make this input into this output, right? Um, and in that sense, it's very like learn on its own because you're not really specifying anything, but you can build in a lot more structure into it, right? And there's different ways that you can build in the structure. So you can say, I'm actually going to have very specific constraints on what it can or cannot learn. And so I think back in the day, a lot of AI actually were like these symbolic AI, which involved more uh, precisely thinking about and sketching out more of these algorithms, right? So what Noah said is like there's some algorithm and what are you doing with the algorithm is back in the day, I think you would be more specific about these are the steps that you need to take. And now we're saying, figure out what the steps are. Right. And so I think that's kind of the different dimensions in which the model learns on its own. Hmm. You want to go through some of these buzzwords a little bit? So we did we've mentioned machine learning. So um, what is machine learning and how is that different from like a neural net? So uh, I think I would put neural networks as a subcategory of machine learning. Okay. Uh, and I'll also note that this is another place where definitions aren't always entirely consistent. Mm. Uh, so I, uh, in the machine learning course that I teach, I give a uh, definition in the first slide of the class saying that so machine learning is a process by which uh, computers or computational systems can learn from data. And then, of course, you know, 
this causes students to raise their hand and say, well, what do you mean by learn from data? And then go on to the second slide and, and say, uh, well, if we imagine that there's some, some task that we want the computational system to perform, uh, and we have some metric of how well it performs, we assume that as we show this, uh, as we show this system more data, uh, a machine learning system should improve in its performance on the task. Uh, and the exact process by which that can take place is quite varied. There's a huge variety of machine learning algorithms that have been developed, everything from uh, a linear regression, which some people would, would categorize as uh, an early form of machine learning before it was even called that, uh, up to the most modern neural networks. Uh, but in all of those processes, sort of we're taking some, some goal and we are creating a representation which performs well on that goal, hopefully based on data that it's seen. Yeah. And part of the process um, that makes it kind of machine learning is this sort of cyclical nature um, where it there's if you add data, um, it improves how well it solves the problem, hopefully, right? Um, uh, each iteration, it's, it's kind of uh, learning in a sense what worked and what didn't, and it's continuing down the path of things that worked. Is there a good example of like the first time this was kind of put into place or some of the earliest mm. versions of this kind of thing? When did – I guess when um, did something first be called kind of AI or is it technically not AI yet because it doesn't have – I mean I guess that goes into question about sentience and stuff. I'm not, not asking about that. But these this type of machine learning, this type of output and analysis by a computer, when did that first kind of start happening? I think people no, go, go ahead. ahead. No. So I think people have been thinking about these questions for almost as long as there has been computing. Sure. Uh, you know, we certainly know that uh, Alan Turing put a lot of thought into questions about uh, artificial intelligence, uh, about uh, sort of whether or not computers could think like or, or you know be mistaken for humans. Uh, and if you look back over the history of AI, you actually see that there are some really fundamental ideas coming up fairly early on in the history of computing. Uh, some of them in kind of a theoretical way that couldn't be actually implemented until computing technology actually got better uh, and we could sort of support the algorithms that they were describing. Uh, but uh, this is another piece which I sort of like to include in a course to kind of surprise students of you know, just, just kind of how long ago uh, some of these ideas uh, were, were bandied about in computer science, especially when it seems like AI is just like the hot new thing that's happening right now to kind of look back and realize that, oh, people have been thinking about uh, neural networks for uh, you know more than half a century at this point. Uh, even if they weren't building large language models back then, they sort of had this notion that something interesting computational was happening in human brains. Wouldn't it be great if we could uh, either replicate or model or in some way leverage that type of computation uh, in a programmed synthetic system? Uh, and you know we're getting closer to being able to do that, uh, but the fundamental idea has been around for a long time. Hmm. And so I just want to pick up on one of the things that Noah brought up about the advances, right? So really there's been kind of two kinds of advances that have made the tools that already existed a lot more effective. And so it's not like we're reinventing the tools. I mean, there's been some advances, right? But I think the tools and the ideas have been around for a long time. The two things that have changed is first now we can scrape all of the internet and we can have a lot of data. So we talked about machine learning in terms of data. And so at some level, I mean, not everyone will agree with it, but at some level, I think the more data you have, we've just been noticing the better 
the model is able to learn the task, right? And so if you have all of the internet, whether it's language or whether it's images or whether it's videos, we just have so much more data, which we just did not have access to, like even few years ago, like let alone decades ago, right? And the other advance has been in how are we able to process this data? So when you have so much data, you need the computational tools to be able to then actually process it. So the same tools are now more efficient in a way because we just have better computational tools, better advances. And so it's like, it's not that the ideas are new, though I think sometimes the field of AI loves reinventing the wheel and it's imagining mm -hmm. that, oh, this new thing has existed for like the past decade, right? Or like past five decades. But I think the the major reason we see such an improvement is because of these like advances of better computation and more data. And, and something just to add to that, um, provide a little historical context is, you know, between these advances, you see uh, what in CS we call AI winters, right? These periods of like some kind of new method was, was invented or, or some advance was made. And there's this big hype cycle around AI. It's going to change the world. It's going to, you know, take over the world maybe. Um, and then sort of progress plateaus. And we, and we go into this period of um, where there's really not a lot of progress made until another one of these advances where we're capable of scraping the internet or something. And then you see this huge boom again in in hype. And uh, and so I think as a field, we're, we're a little bit um, skeptical or, or I don't know, maybe less sort of um, caught up in the hype because we've sort of seen this before. Um, but it's a little bit hard to tell when you're in the middle of one of those hype cycles right now. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's one of the first times too where it's just available, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. People can kind of just tap into or play with it for the first time, just general public. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess to that, talk a little bit about the risks associated with AI and the benefits. And I guess that kind of, you know, weighing the both of those things. Yeah, so I think um, there's been a lot made of the sort of risks and benefits of AI. I think in the, in the news media, some of it um, is, is maybe a little bit sensational, but um, but I think there are some uh, there are going to be some changes probably made in the world because of things like ChatGPT. Um, and depending on how you look at them, they could be risks, they could be benefits, right? So, uh, for example. Um, you know, ChatGPT has already been used, actually before ChatGPT, um, previous models have been used to like generate um, text online for articles, right? So like if you went on uh, on on your, you know, uh, to check the scores of uh, some football game or something, chances are that that article was generated by an AI, right? And and so if we look at that, you know, through, through one lens, we can say, oh, that's taking away someone's job. Um, but through a different lens, we could look at it and say, like, well, that wasn't a really great job to have. Like, that's probably not very fulfilling to write this very boilerplate text, um, you know, every time there's a football game or something. And so if we if we look at it as, like, a reduction in this sort of very basic menial labor, um, maybe that's a good thing, you know. And it's a little bit hard to see through our kind of capitalistic lens that that's a good thing. But but, you know, from a sort of societal lens, maybe that's a good thing. And, and maybe that frees us up to focus on more complicated, more interesting, more important problems. Um, so I think that's sort of one one risk uh, is the sort of economic thing. Um, there's other risks. I don't know. I'll let other people chime in. So I think that there's been a lot made recently about risks related to misinformation generation. Sure. Uh, and 
uh, I definitely think that that's that's something to consider. Uh, we've we've certainly seen negative impacts of misinformation over the past several years, and it's become uh, sort of a frequently referred to. Uh, issue of, of modern times, uh, and I, I expect that that will continue to be a risk of these large language models uh, as they're more and more capable of generating text that looks like it's real, you know, something that a human wrote. Uh, on the benefits side, I think that there's uh, a, a lot of potential, potential that has both already been realized and that will continue to be realized uh, for AI systems to uh, sort of assist humans to do tasks uh, better than they could have before. Uh, I think there's been a lot of work recently uh, in the field of uh, applying AI to medical tasks and techniques, uh, which doesn't necessarily sort of replace doctors or, or replace uh, practitioners, but can maybe help them do things faster or, or more accurately than they could have before. Uh, there's been um, – Lots of work on uh, AI systems which will help with various diagnoses, things like looking at uh, uh, different types of medical scans uh, or looking at uh, patient reports and using the fact that they can leverage huge data sets uh, with information from patients all around the world over many, many years uh, to try to come to a hopefully more accurate uh, description or uh, diagnosis, which then a, a real doctor could look at and, and verify. Uh, but, you know, as good as a doctor is, right, they're not going to be able to maintain uh, every image, uh, every CAT scan taken sort of in the past 20 years across the country in their head all at once. But they might have some really important uh, practical learned knowledge uh, that they can apply. And so I think that really we're going to see hopefully a lot of benefits from combining these AI systems which do the things that computers do very well, like remembering data, doing computations, with the things that humans do very well, sort of applying their professional discernment to unique situations. Uh, and that's hopefully true in medicine, but I think it'll be true in a lot of different areas uh, that still really haven't seen that much penetration in AI. And, and I talk about this also in my course, that uh, despite the fact that AI now seems to be everywhere in the news, there's lots of areas where really there hasn't been that much application of AI yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you start to expand out uh, of the, the computer science, Silicon Valley tech world, uh, really there's a lot of, uh, of areas that could uh, really benefit from the application of, of AI in certain ways. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, as we see these new technologies and the computational systems that enable them percolate outward, uh, we're going to be seeing advances uh, in all of those uh, areas as uh, people start to apply their data and their problems uh, and see how well the new AI technologies uh, do at solving them. And I just want to kind of build on both of those, right? So it's like the menial labor that is applying it to new contexts, and I kind of want to maybe tie that together and how that can help with, say, science, right? So like in, so knowledge generation. And I think like, as AI has advanced, there's a lot of fields of science who are not computer scientists that are really benefiting from it, right? So you can do things that you were never able to do before. So if you want to ask some question that required you to, say, do like a meta-analysis of all scientific work, originally you might have had to read all of it and summarize it. That's a lot of work, right? But now what you can do is have an AI, have it summarize things for you, and then you can double-check it. So you can take something that was menial, but important, and make that faster. And so now you're able to kind of move faster in science and ask different kinds of questions, right? And whether that's like, so that, that's like one example. Like, And then AI has also let us ask questions that we weren't able to ask 
before, right? So like one kind of thing that people do in neuroscience is you have questions about how is something happening in the brain. There are limits on the kinds of experiments you can run on humans because of ethics, but you can run these on models, right? So you can limit access to that information. You can cut off parts of the network, see what happens. And so I think there's really like with these advances, there's a lot of new kinds of questions that we can ask in science that is really kind of combining one on one aspect, making a lot of tedious tasks easier and the other aspects really affording like new kinds of question generation. So I think that's like a really, uh, yeah, that's an important benefit that doesn't often come up, I think, in popular media, but has been like very salient to anyone who's working in science these days. Um, and I just kind of want to also comment on one of the, like, I guess, risks that has also come up is the ethics aspect of mm -hmm. it, right? So, mm -hmm. and I think the ethics aspect is very closely tied into the AI hype and how confident we are about these models, right? So now we have these models, we're deploying them in different contexts, we're having them automate our tasks and all of that is great. But the thing is, these models are not perfect, right? So we know for a fact that they're not perfect. They're good most of the times, maybe, but they're not good in some crucial cases, right? And so if you think about like a self-driving car, it works most times, but the one time it runs over pedestrian, that's not great, right? right. But the thing is, and I think that's easier, I mean, not yes, great. Not great. <laughs> um, I think that's easy to see in the context of self-driving cars because you know what is bad, mm. right? But I think in the context of where it's actually being deployed in many contexts, you don't actually know what is correct, or you don't know like why the model is doing what it's doing. So if you're filtering resumes and you're like, oh, look, it's getting us this accuracy, but it's learning some bias that we don't want it to learn, but we don't know what it's learning, right? That's the thing with a lot of these modern networks is we know they're doing some task. We don't know why they're giving, why or how they're doing that task, right? And so given that, uh, we are, I think, yeah, it kind of adds to a lot of these biases, pre-existing biases. And then, but also the confidence issue comes in here, which is most people are kind of aware of existing biases in humans. I don't think anyone's going to look at a human and say, oh, you're perfect. And I'm going to trust your judgment without questioning it. Right. But there's something like mystical about AI. And we're like, oh, this is like all knowing thing. And so then they trust the judgments of it more and they think it's more objective. They're like, oh, we're mitigating bias by using this computation because computation is objective, but it's not, right? So I think that's the kind of, it makes people overconfident in a decision that might actually be propagating existing biases. And I think that's like a big risk. Yeah, and, and so the reason why it's, it's, it is biased is because the data that it's trained on is data that's generated by human beings, right? And human beings are biased, right? So um, in, in, in early AI, even in ChatGPT, you know, um, when it first came out, there's lots of things you could punch into ChatGPT and get some pretty like horrendous answers, you know, that really expose the sort of biases that were latent in the data that it was trained on. It was scraped on uh, by the data it was trained on was scraped from the internet, and the internet can be a pretty terrible place, right? And um, there's a, a more poignant example of this a couple of years ago. Microsoft put out an AI chatbot called Tay. Um, and within 24 hours, Tay kind of um, devolved into this like neo-Nazi mess, right? Um, and but it was partially because Tay was trained on the data that was being inputted to it, and people were inputting this sort of garbage. Um, so we have this garbage in, garbage out sort of um, uh, phrase. And 
I think another risk that, so that's always been a risk in these kind of machine learning models. I think we're entering a sort of meta risk here because we're going to be soon, quite maybe now, we're sort of living in this world in which it's probably the case that as we progress into the future, more and more of the internet is going to be AI generated, right? So you have these models being trained on data generated by themselves, right? And so we get into this kind of cyclical uh, feedback loop here. Um, and if we're not careful about the kind of, uh, the, the way that we train these models, we can maybe get into some kind of um, bad situations. Um, I also wanted to to highlight something that Grusha and Noah both said. Uh, so there's this um, computer scientist who uh, uh, decades ago talked about this idea of um, human computer symbiosis, right? And uh, his name's J.C.R. Licklider. Um, and uh, he was talking about sort of technology in general, but I think this is especially true for, for AI. And this is something that you don't typically see in the news headlines. You often see this like either them or us kind of approach, right? They're either going to take your jobs or they're not, right? But they don't really talk about the ways in which they might change the nature of the work, right? Um, and, and not just we're now working together, but we're working together in a way that is greater than the sum of these two things, right? We're we are able to process data in a way that we weren't able to do before. We're able to think about problems that we weren't able to do before. It's a lot of big, big things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes me think a lot about, too, like um, humanity's trajectory and our understanding of technology, our development of technology and that curve. And now if all of these different industries that never really tapped into mass data sets before – um, are now able to do that, you know, what will that do to our development of technology and the speed of that technological development? I almost feel like the allure of that is so enticing that any negative is going to be kind of not cast aside, but I'm, I'm certain that um, it, it kind of overshadows that. Is the the chance for um, exponential development of technology um, as we know it now and I guess sur vastly surpassing, you know, what we currently know – does the allure of that mean that um, there is going to be a lot – fewer people worried about the, the downside is what I'm saying. Is that um, – or is there a way to kind of put up guardrails to keep bad actors from doing terrible things with this powerful technology? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question, right? So basically, you know, is the allure of the of the benefits going to sort of – um, make the risks seem less, you know, salient. Um, that I, I think we're we're certainly seeing that right now, right? People are, um, you know, like we're we're sort of in this hype cycle. Something I will say though is lots of people are sort of sounding the alarm, um, and I don't think it's necessarily. Uh, some people have said like, well, this is inevitable, right? And um, you know, one of the arguments that you'll hear from Silicon Valley is like, well. Uh, and and uh, OpenAI made this argument, right? Basically, is like, well, if we don't do it, then somebody else will, and we trust ourselves to be, you know, more ethical. So, you know, we do. And this is sort of like a justification you hear a lot uh, in in Silicon Valley. And um, I, that's something that I don't really buy, at least on the short term, because one of the features of these models is they're huge, right? They take a huge amount of resources to train. It's not like anyone can train one of these models and, you know, disrupt the planet. 
they they take a lot of money to to do this, right? And so I don't think it's necessarily too late for us as a society to to come together and say, how should we deal with this? You know, what kind of regulation should we put on? Yeah, I I, I agree with Nick. I think that's a great great point. I also think that we're in this moment where uh, the evolution of these models is such that uh, you know, while things are, are quite expensive to do now, it costs OpenAI several million dollars to train each version of, of ChatGPT. Uh, as these technologies continue to advance, I think we can probably expect that they become more and more accessible to average users. Uh, we certainly saw an increase in accessibility just with the ChatGPT interface of people being able to go in and, and try this out in a way that maybe they couldn't before. Uh, but I think we'll also see continued increases in accessibility for training your own versions of these models. And there are other open source consortia that are trying to make this more, more feasible. Uh, and I think that we can also look to some historical analogies here. Uh, if we think back in the sort of introduction of the uh, electronic calculator, this is, this is one that uh, I sort of like to use to kind of frame my thoughts around this, uh, prior to calculators there were there were people who were employed as calculators that was the job and and, and they did what was probably mostly menial uh, and often quite complicated uh, arithmetic uh, they are often under uh, appreciated uh, and that was an entire uh, job which was effectively replaced by more effective calculator tools and I think that there was a similar amount of uh, anxiety about that especially in uh, education for mathematics, uh, thinking about sort of what does it mean to know how to do calculations when you have a, a small device on your desk that can do uh, any number of operations ranging from simple arithmetic to more complex sort of graphing operations. Uh, and you know, we made it through that. We have sort of found a way to still teach and sort of do math. And I think in some ways we found a way to do it, which is even more effective. Uh, we have kind of set guardrails around uh, so for students, when it's appropriate to use these tools and when it's not. And certainly we've seen that in the broader context, we've been able to do more complex, more interesting things uh, more quickly because we have these technologies. And so I think that there are a lot of parallels there with these new AI systems where we're in that moment that we haven't yet figured out what our societal norms will be on, on how and when these things should be used and, and what's appropriate and what's not. Uh, and that amount of uncertainty obviously makes people uncomfortable for, for you know, very good reasons. Uh, and, you know, I, I expect or at least hope that uh, we will similarly come to a more uh, grounded, you know, normative uh, realization for, for what we should and shouldn't be doing with these models. Uh, and then they will become tools that are sort of more of a part of our daily life and feeling less like uh, overarching existential threat. <laughs> and I just want to add, like, I think one thing that is slightly maybe not tangential, I think it's, it's a different thing, a different approach, which is, so I think like you said, what are the risks and are people going to ignore the risks, right? So I think a part of answering the question is what is being posed to the public as risks of these systems, right? So in academic circles, people are raising flags about mm -hmm. these are the risks, these are biases, these are the environmental causes, all of that. But Often, I think, to the general public, the risk is, oh, this is going to become like sentient and take over the world, <laughs> which is a much further reaching risk. And it's not necessarily the right kind of risk we want to be talking about or setting 
policies against, right? I think there's like other more immediate concerns that we need to be thinking about. But part of this narrative is being shaped by, you know, again, like companies or whatever. So I think it's like, so I think that's something to keep in mind is how imminent these risks feel and how much it shapes whether we're worried about it and the allure of the benefits is going to depend on what the risks are or what the perceived risks are. And I think there's definitely, like I think Nick brought up, there's definitely people who are kind of, you know, talking about it. And it's not that no one's talking about it, right? But I think it's just what does the general public perceive as the risk is, I think, going to matter to the answer, to answer your question there. Hmm. I think maybe a more immediate risk than the sort of AI overlord thing is AI replacing uh, human jobs where you might have liked to interact with a human being, right? So, like, if you go to the DMV and you have a slightly unique case, right, and suddenly we're five years in the future and, and it's be, you're being processed by an AI and it's kind of unable to accommodate, it's, sort of, it's unable to sort of fudge the rules like a human being might be able to do and understand, Um you know, there's this idea that, like, as we progress in the future, like, uh, the masses are going to be more uh, processed by machines, whereas, like, you know, um, elites are going to be more processed by human beings. Human interaction is going to be a sort of um, privilege that you have uh, because it's more expensive. Mm. And so I think that's I, that's a risk that I think people really aren't talking about, but probably the more um, short-term risk for uh, that we're looking at. Yeah, I just heard Wendy's is going to be testing, uh, you, you know, basically that technology in the drive-through, which yeah. I'm kind of excited about. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I'd also like to add um, another risk, which is relevant to uh, my research area, is the use of AI agents by uh, nefarious actors, mm. uh, and this is something which um, the academic community is definitely thinking about. There's an entire field uh, of adversarial machine learning, which is based on figuring out ways in which AI systems and machine learning systems can be subverted to do things that perhaps they weren't designed to do. Uh, often, you know, they weren't designed to do in nefarious ways to draw attention to those problems so that they can be corrected in later versions of the technology uh, and. Uh, this is a really fascinating and fast-moving area because as new models and, and new systems are being developed, there's new ways in which they can be misused. Uh, and there's sort of new techniques that can be leveraged to make them behave in nefarious or even just unexpected ways. And coming up with uh, how that works, sort of understanding deeply what makes a model behave correctly versus incorrectly – uh, is is fascinating research uh, and something that I think that we'll continue to see being extremely relevant uh, and uh, sort of, you know more and more uh, applicable to the systems that people are interacting with on a day to day basis. I would hope that, for example, in the case uh, that that Nick brought up of the AI system that's helping people at the DMV, someone will have thought about you know what happens if someone goes into that DMV and types in. Uh, carefully tailored input to make the system give them a like an output that may be socially non-desirable. Uh, and if if people haven't thought about that case, then they haven't prepared to protect uh, the system against it. Uh, and so it's really important when uh, when building AI systems, just as it is when building any computational system, to kind of keep issues of of security and privacy at the forefront during that development process. Uh, so we can harden those systems and make sure that they don't have the potential for 
unexpected or esoteric or nefarious behavior that we just haven't planned for. Uh, because it's much better for that type of behavior to come out in testing or during academic research than it is when it's actually deployed and affecting many people's lives. Just to give another concrete example of of this sort of ways in which uh, AI can be manipulated. Um, so let's say you have an algorithm, a uh, uh, content personalization algorithm, which is AI, um, like like the one you have on TikTok, right? Um, presumably, right, uh, or ostensibly, um, the algorithm is, is designed to kind of learn the kind of things you like and then serve you those kinds of things, right? But if you had a bad actor sort of in the loop, they could very subtly put their finger on the scale a little bit on the algorithm and feed you a little bit more of specific kind of content, right? That um, that might not be overtly obvious, right, uh, at first, but but over time and, and at scale, right? Because these, Influence. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, you have this this real kind of influence on, on thoughts and behaviors. Hmm. I mean, we could talk about this for days. Yes. There, 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 is so much, there is so much here and there are so many questions and it's so fascinating that I feel like I could do several episodes on this. And I might do a separate one in the future about um, like the, the whole Turing test, the, the, whole, the whole idea of like what is sentient and that kind of – that's a whole other episode I think. There's, there's just too much there. Um, but tell me about how Colgate, uh, particularly the computer science department – how are you reacting to the rapid growth in AI, and how do you how do you teach about these things? Yeah, I, th I can start, and I'm sure everyone here has has thoughts. Uh, I think this is a particularly exciting time to be in the computer science department. So we are all assistant faculty here. Uh, Nick and I have been at Colgate for three years. Uh, Grusha has been at Colgate for one year, uh, and I think we're really trying to build some. Uh, expertise uh, in AI in in the department uh, and, and to grow this as an area where uh, the department uh, really feels like there's something special going on, uh, both in terms of research and in terms of opportunities that we provide to students. Uh, so uh, we're going to have another uh, new professor joining us next fall who specializes in uh, natural language processing uh, and AI. Uh, we have uh, been working both within the department and with uh, ITS to expand the computational resources that are available for AI research and teaching. Uh, this is an ongoing process and one that you know, I think is going to be vital to supporting all of these initiatives. Uh, and just you know, beyond that, we have a, a variety of new courses that uh, we've introduced uh, that allow students to experience AI. So my applied machine learning course uh, takes a very sort of broad survey perspective, uh, giving students a chance to learn about and actually practically implement um, machine learning algorithms ranging from relatively simple techniques like regressions and decision trees to a lot more of the sort of modern complicated uh, deep learning approaches like convolutional networks and, and large learning models. Uh, and then during that course, they get to apply these to real data sets and uh, do a term project uh, on a topic of their choice that strikes their fancy and try to build a machine learning pipeline that, uh, that solves a problem that they really care about. Wow. Yeah, and I think I guess I, I'm going to echo <laughs> everything uh, Noah said. I think that's great. I just want to kind of, uh, um, I think one thing to add here is the kinds of flavors of ML and AI that we can teach with more people coming in with slightly different backgrounds, right? So Noah just talked about Applied ML, which is a great course, and like people are very excited. The .NLP, and 
initially we thought there would be a lot more overlap, but surprisingly there was very little overlap between the courses, right? So the approach to NLP was like, let's think about language. So it was less, I mean, it was applied in a sense towards the end, but in the beginning we're like, okay, let's think about what needs to happen for language, right? So the first half of the course was not even looking at these modern systems, but going back and what are the different approaches that have been used? And then you build up to see why the systems that we're using right now work, right? Like why why are they effective? And then you can kind of use that to build like a final project. And I think I was very impressed and excited to see like the kinds of things people came up with. And, and, and I think that's kind of like, the nice thing that I'm excited about having so many people working on it and introducing different classes is at every point you can bring in slightly different perspectives to the same ideas. And I think that can really be beneficial because we're not just like, oh, this is a tool, but we're inculcating a way of thinking about this that I think will hopefully uh, serve people as much or maybe even more than the specific tools themselves that they're learning about. And I'm also like very excited that Nick is teaching all of the ethics stuff. I'm going <laughs> to let him talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about AI in and, and the ethics course. Um, I'm basically trying to uh, prevent my students from creating the overlord. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess we'll wait and see if that's successful. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we're, we've we've made it to question thirteen, and I always like to ask something a little bit um, a little bit off kilter or something fun. Uh, and I'm curious uh, for each of you, um, what is a way that you use AI in your daily life, or or that you have used? Not if not in the daily life, what is a unique way you've used AI in the past? Or if you haven't done it um, yourself, what is a creative way that you've heard of folks using AI? Um, just to kind of open folks' minds as to the the scope here, um, and I'll let whoever wants to go first, Ken. Yeah, so I I think um, I both use AI daily and uh, have AI used sort of tangentially <laughs> to me, right? <laughs> so like most, not most, but many of the apps you use on your phone, right, are are powered by AI. Um, I think in terms of sort of active participation, if you've used a voice assistant, right, you've used AI. Um, in terms of sort of our own work, um, you know, uh, any sort of boilerplate text you have to generate, ChatGBT is great for that sort of thing. We've talked a little bit about that. And I'll jump right into ChatGPT because, I mean, I also like maybe slightly embarrassed. I use voice assistant a lot <laughs> to do all of the things, but I want to kind of focus a little bit about the chat GPT thing. So I've actually used it to generate stimuli for experiments, right? So coming up with stimuli is very annoying. I'm like, what are these words? You have to kind of control for it. So I'm not just feeding it and directly copy pasting it, right? But I'm saying, okay, what are some sentences with this verb? Give me this verb, oh. give me this frame, and then it'll give me sentence. And like, I don't like it. Give me something slightly different. And there's limits on how much it can get you, but I think it's made like stimuli creation for experiments so much easier. And also just like framing, right? So if I'm tired and I don't know like how to frame something, I'll be like, okay, give me a draft, like write yeah. one paragraph. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to use that as a starting point. I actually like did that for like a class at the beginning of NLP. I'm like, so what should NLP be? And it gave me this thing. I'm like, you know, that's not bad. I'm going to like cite chat GPT and say, okay, this is what we will do. This is what we won't do. But I think, you know, it, it's, the starting point, I think the framing space, getting in the right headspace, I've actually used it 
quite a lot and I find that helpful. Yeah, I'm kind of going to follow right along with that. So I have used uh, ChatGPT for um, some of the programming that I've been doing lately. Uh, one of the things about uh, of programming for, for people who aren't aware is that you often are incorporating uh, existing code and existing programs that other people have written and that are available to you in public libraries uh, that are often quite extensive and have lots and lots of documentation uh, and often very specific ways of using them. Uh, in the past, in order to sort of use those correctly, you'd either have to, to go in and, and do lots of sort of reading and understanding of, of how this is sort of working precisely, and that's often unique for each one of these libraries that you might want to use. Or you would go and try to find examples of how other people have used them in the past and treat those examples as templates for building your own uh, software. And I found ChatGPT to be a very useful uh, component of that process, where rather than sort of scouring the internet for good prior examples to sort of act as, as, as teaching templates, uh, ChatGPT will often be able to generate for you a, a good starting point to show how to use some either new library or some library that you've used before but are a bit fuzzy on all of the details. And then you can take those examples and sort of still using uh, the sort of knowledge and expertise that you have, you can judge whether or not they are correct. You can often modify them in some ways, but it can be a quicker interface to getting to the ultimate product uh, that I want to get to without having to spend lots of time trawling through uh, examples or, or sort of dense documentation uh, and move more quickly to the more interesting parts of, of what I'm working on. And I typically don't answer my own questions, but I will say that the initial 13 questions for this podcast were written by <laughs> ChatGPT. Yeah. So, we, uh, I, I guess that. <laughs> <laughs> I put in the thing and yeah. see what it would I, I, the, the prompt was write a series of 13 of the most common questions people have about AI. <laughs> so that's why they were a little wooden, but I thought it was interesting. And, um, you know, we didn't use that as the final um, script here. But, um, yeah, so uh, all around, pretty interesting. And I know there'll be a lot more to come on this. And, and thank you all very much for joining. I think this was a really fascinating episode. So uh, Grusha and Nick and Noah, thank you so much. And you. Uh, tell your friends and family about the podcast. Um, and uh, until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive Producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com. <laughs>